If you have ever had a lawn, I can almost guarantee that you've experienced one of the greatest evils ever faced by mankind. Weeds. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, a podcast created to reveal beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. On today's episode, we're talking about weeds, gardens, and the problem with the world. I highly recommend that each and every person grow some kind of edible plant. Herbs are a great place to start. Maybe you can grow a tiny rosemary next to the kitchen sink. If you have space for a garth, then why not a lemon tree, or some watermelons, or pumpkins if you're into vines? Maybe you'll tell me, but Ben, I'm more into roots than fruits. No problem. In that case, get yourself some onions or taters or garlic. I recommend growing food, because growing food is like growing money. But more importantly, there is nothing that tastes so delightful as fresh from the garden. In fact, growing anything, edible or inedible, plants, people, businesses, whatever it may be, is incredibly satisfying. It is rewarding beyond measure, but it is also humbling. With plants specifically, whether growing a garden or maintaining a lawn, there is a unique experience that is nearly guaranteed to knock you from your high pedestal and hubris and bring you down to the dirt. That experience, my friends, is weeds. Personally, I abstain from any kind of weed sprays or killers, and one consequence of that is that I spend a lot of time on my hands and knees pulling weeds, one at a time, out of the dirt, only to watch them grow back sooner than I would have predicted. And it seems that it matters little how thoroughly I clear the area, or how diligently I deracinate the things, roots included. The weeds will return, and you can bet your bottom dollar on it. I don't mind, though, despite how it probably sounds. I could do shortcuts like sprays, but I choose not to. In honesty, weeding is, on a certain level, meditative. The simple, repetitive motion requires little to no mental effort, so I can easily lose myself in it. Weeding forces my hands into the soil, before long caking my fingertips in black dirt, and I think that's good, something all people should experience. At a more abstract level, I think weeding also contains a lesson. Over the years, I have grown to understand weeds as a metaphor. You see, the weeds our sins. Now let me take an aside here because many of us are uncomfortable with a word like sin. When reading a book like the Bible, it is important to understand that many different words are translated as sin, and they all have slightly different connotations. For example, the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia, both of which are translated as sin, refer to the idea of missing the mark. Chata, or sin, was used when describing the Hebrew artillery. It was said that the slingers and archers would never sin, that is, never miss their target. 
this sense can be applied to one's life as well. Do you ever miss the mark in your own life? Have you ever veered off the intended path, either through action or lack of action? So when I see weeds in the garden and think of sin, I am thinking less about specific transgressions against God and mankind, but more about the small ways in which I have not lived up to the expectations that I have for myself. Did I want to wake up early and get the day started right, but instead I slept in again? In that case, I missed the mark. Laziness is creeping in and another weed sprouts in the garden. Did you tell yourself that you would be a more courteous driver, and yet you find yourself cutting people off in traffic and violently tailgating other motorists? That's missing the mark. Are you harsher on your children than you tell yourself you'll be? All these things are sins in the sense of missing the mark. Such small misses violate established expectations. In these examples, they're one's own expectations, but they could just as easily have been God's. But you see, it is not always about murder and affairs. Sometimes, sins are the small things too. A camel can't hold the weight of a boulder, so no one tries to load that poor animal with a thousand-pound rock. But you know what we will try? Adding one straw after another after another, because it's still standing, it hasn't died yet, until you place that final straw, and it's carrying the weight of a boulder. But you never realize that the burden was too much. If you want to boil a frog to death, you turn the heat up slowly, just a half degree at a time. And if you want to ruin your yard, you let the weeds creep in slowly, one at a time. And you won't even notice they're suffusing until you come home one day and realize that you've got nothing but thistle. And by that point, you don't even know where to begin to put it all back to right. Now that we're in the mood for gardens, Let's talk about the garden. The garden which all others would seek to emulate. The inimitable garden that God placed in the east end of a land called delight. Usually, we call it the Garden of Eden. The story very roughly goes like this. In the garden, there was a man and a woman. They were able to commune with God, and there was all manner of delightful thing. However, also in the garden was a tree that held the knowledge of good and evil, about which God gave the admonishment, Do not eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you partake thereof, surely in that day you shall die. And the rest is probably familiar. The serpent deceived me, and I did eat. The man and the woman ate the fruit, introduced sin into the world were banished from the garden, lost their intimacy with God, had all sorts of problems from then on, and, since they too introduced death into the world, they eventually died. There are many extrapolations of this story, and many lessons that can be learned from it. It is commonly used as a myth to explain good, evil, and all the unpleasantness of the world, including death and dying. If no one ever told you that it was part of the opening sequence for Jewish and Christian holy canon, 
If all you knew was that it belonged to an ancient religion, you would likely recognize its similarities to the Greek myth about Pandora and her box. Both stories are theodicy centered around the idea that the first woman introduced evil into the world. If I had to guess, comparing Abrahamic scripture to Greek mythology would likely get me called apostate, heretic, or worse. Yet even worse is to reduce the story about the garden to merely theodicy, the question about why there is evil in the world. To limit the tale thusly is to commit an injustice to the story itself, because it is so much more. Of course, another interpretation of the garden tale is that it is a historical account about our progenitors. I address this with the same answer that I give when asked whether or not the earth was formed in six 24-hour periods, versus four and a half thousand million years. Believe what you want to but I don't really care. To me, it is a non-issue. It affects neither my faith nor my belief in God. It's not worth arguing over. And when I first read the creation story, I never stopped to ask myself if the six days described were really six calendar days. The thought never occurred in my mind because it's irrelevant to the story's meaning. Indeed, if it were not such a frequent point of contention, I might never have asked the question. So in the end, you can believe that Adam and Eve were two factual, historical figures, or you cannot. Because here's another extrapolation of the garden story. Like the weeds in my own garden, it is a metaphor. The garden is in a place called Eden, a word meaning pleasure or delight. Because in God's creation... In the place where the Lord and I walk in the cool of the evening, there is delight. We call the man Adam because Adama is dirt, and the story goes that God reached into the dirt, formed the human being, and then breathed into the lump of clay to give it life. Now that itself is worth the whole story. Imagine, consider for a moment, a God who crafted you with care whose fingers were dirtied for you, whose very own spirit animated you. Maybe there's a reason why the rabbis say, although you come from the dirt, the universe was made for you. And while we call the man Adam, or Adam, we call the woman Eve. Her partner gave her that moniker. He said, you are Chava, because you give life. This was after they ate fruit, by the way. So if Adam had looked at her and thought, you brought death into the world, then why would he call her life-giver? It's like Adam read the Silmarillion and understood that death is not only a curse, but somehow also a gift. Because mortality means that we are not bound to the fate of this world, that our time is precious, and that each day is a God-given gift. So Chava. Eve, in English, gives life. Maybe she also brought some trouble into the world that wouldn't have been there without her, but in her is life. Indeed, how many times have you thought something like that the first time you fell in love? Maybe the garden is about love overcoming. If you read about the garden, and your biggest takeaway is that it's Eve, not Steve, 
or that it was a woman who caused the downfall of the world, then let me plainly say that you're reading it wrong, because that's not what the story is about. You see, in the garden there was a tree. But the tricky part is that it wasn't a tree, it was a choice. God didn't make a garden of delight and place a stumbling block right in its middle just to mess with the fledgling humans, as if God were a maniacal bully hell-bent on the destruction of humanity just to say, I told you so. The tree is not a tree. The tree is a choice. And it was not just the choice that Adam and Eve faced. It is the choice that you and I face, and have faced, each and every day, with each and every decision that has been before us. The choice to do it my way, on my terms and in my timing, versus the choice to do it God's way. That choice is what it means to eat fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eating the fruit is replacing God's way with our own way, defining good and evil for ourselves and in our own terms, to become like God as it were. It's not that mankind stole God's own secret knowledge and incurred the fallout of divine wrath, as if Adam and Eve were Prometheus who stole fire from the Olympians. It is that all humans, including me personally, look at God and say, I see your way, but instead, I am going to try it my way. I know that you say your way is best for me, but I want to try this other thing instead. It's no wonder, then, when my way causes all sorts of problems that could have been avoided with God's way. As Walter Miller puts it, The old father of lies was clever at telling half-truths. How can you know good and evil until you shall have sampled a little? Taste and be as gods. But neither infinite power nor infinite wisdom could bestow godhood upon men. For that, there would have to be infinite love as well. There's a reason why God's method, God's way, is better than mine. For God knows things that I do not, has clairvoyance that I lack. Indeed, in God's own words, my ways are above your ways. In essence, they're better. But God is characterized by infinite love, and accordingly gives us a choice. The same way that God has been giving mankind a choice back to the very beginning, back to the start of our species, back to the first man and first woman the choice to trust and live our lives God's way, or to attempt our own way. So the story about the garden is not about how two people, who may be historical figures, who may be metaphorical, or who may be some combination thereof, not about how those two people were beguiled by an interloping snake into eating forbidden fruit, how God then got angry at them, and how I now am stuck with the eternal punishment that they too inflicted upon me. No, the story about the garden is not about that. Rather, it is about my personal choice to trust God or not to, and how I, not Adam nor Eve, but Ben, said no. I missed the mark. In biblical terms, I sinned. You see, it is not Adam, 
not Eve who brought sin into the world. It's me. The trouble with the world is not Adam and Eve. The trouble with the world is me, because not all sins are other people's. Some of them are mine. Mine, Adam's, Eve's, Herod's, Judas's, Caesar's, Stalin's, mine. I notice that some people use the garden story to pass the blame, to pass it to anybody but themselves. But the story of the garden is not about passing the blame back through time to the first man, only to have him pass it over to the first woman, who herself passed it to the sibilant serpent. The story of the garden is about personal responsibility, that I, me here and now, have a choice. God's way or mine. In the past, I may have missed the mark, but thank God that the Lord does not resign us to the errors of our past, but with each and every day, with each and every choice, gives us a new opportunity to choose. Thank God for forgiveness and grace and not condemning us to the sins of our forebears or our former selves. The trouble with the world is not only other people. Yes, people suck, and I readily admit that. It is natural to look at the people around you, or more easily to look at the people on the other side of the world, who are far away and different from you, and say that they're causing all the problems. But in reality, sometimes my lassitude gets the better of me, and I just stop caring, because virtue is difficult. Sometimes I give in to my vices, and then I cause problems. Even when I am on point, even when I am trying my best to walk step by step with God, letting God's way define good and evil, even then I still miss the mark. Yes, even when I think I'm doing right, even when I'm sincerely sincere, I still miss the mark. Quoting Walter Miller again, Sincere. That was the hell of it. From a distance, one's adversary seemed fiends. But with a closer view, one saw the sincerity, and it was as great as one's own. Perhaps, Satan was the sincerest of the lot. There is, in my opinion, liberation in the humble task of weeding. It reminds me that I am in control of my actions, and by extension my life. It reminds me that God gives me a choice. To me, weeding is an invitation to abide Mahatma Gandhi's well-known exhortation to be the change you wish to see in the world. There is, in my opinion, humanity in the humble task of weeding. It reminds me that I'm not perfect, and I don't have to be. It encourages me towards tolerance. Since we all miss the mark, who am I to judge you with all the sincerity you bear? Today, we've been talking about the garden story. But do you know what the real garden story is? 
what it is really all about. The garden story is not about Eden. It is about Gethsemane. Indeed, the garden story was never about Eden. Eden was only ever a foreshadowing of another garden yet to come. And the story is not about Adam, who represents all humanity. It is about Jesus, who is for all humanity. Where Adam disobeyed God in the garden, the same place that I disobeyed God, and brought destruction in another garden called Gethsemane, Jesus passed the test. He obeyed the word of the Lord and brought not destruction, but redemption. Released into the world not death, but life. Before Jesus was put to trial and arraigned before the Roman governor and others, before he was tortured and crucified, he was arrested. And before he was arrested, he went to a garden of olive trees called Gethsemane. He went to Gethsemane to pray about his impending final moments in that life. There, on his knees before God, Jesus cried out, Father, if there is another way, then please don't make me endure this. What you may or may not realize is that there, in Gethsemane, Jesus was preparing to bear the punishment for fruit having been eaten when it never should have been eaten. But of all the people on the planet who have been and will be, Jesus was the only one who abstained from that fruit. Nevertheless, because everyone else did bite into it, each and everyone chose to abandon God's way and choose their own. And because Jesus sought the restoration and redemption of mankind, he prepared to endure not only crucifixion, but separation from God. The thought of that fate was so agonizing, not only mental, but causing such intense physical stress, that Jesus literally sweat blood. Yet in his grief, Jesus nevertheless cried out to God, Not my will, Father, but yours be done. I and Adam and so many others, disobeyed God in a garden. But Jesus passed the test. Jesus obeyed God in a garden. So God, then, counted the actions of Jesus as our own. And now, God counts us blameless because Jesus accepted the blame. We receive no punishment because Jesus, perfect, innocent, and untainted by the fruit that once tainted us, endured it on our behalf, mine, Adam's, and the rest of humanity's. Eden is not about Adam. It is about Jesus. The story of the garden is not about trying to desperately rid it of weeds and being disappointed when they keep coming back. The story of the garden is about recognizing that I can never keep up with the weeds, no matter how hard I alone try. But accepting the aid of Jesus, then the weeds are manageable. With God's intendance, the reality becomes that the weeds can never ruin the garden. Just like when I miss the mark, when I sin, it can't kill me. Because the story of the garden is the story of Jesus. Which is to say, the story 
of grace. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry. The best way that you can help grow this podcast is to share it with the people in your life. Tell someone you know that you're listening and finding beauty and purpose revealed in your life. And invite that person to listen also. The next episode will be out in one fortnight. That's two weeks from today. And don't forget that you can always subscribe to the show to receive a notification when that happens. Go with God. Go in peace.